episode 252, No Driving Gloves. We're going to introduce a new co-host to the program this evening. We're going to talk Generation Z and the cars they may collect. And we're going to end up going down memory lane quite often. Hit it, Gary. The gloves are off. Welcome to the Authority in Car Talk. No driving gloves. From exotics to hot rods to I'll get to it someday. Experience, knowledge, and controversy all ride in the same seat. Buckle up and hang on for the ride. Now for your host of No Driving Gloves, John Viviani. See, we're trying to get back to this thing. We've got a really good intro now. Rolling along, show improvements as we go. And Derek and I have been busy. You know, it's hard to get some of these shows out with our schedules. And, you know, Will's stepping back. And, you know, Will's going to be joining us again for some episodes. And Derek gets overloaded at work. I get overloaded at work. And we've been asking for the last six months or so, or the last six months of last year, really, uh, that we wanted to get a new co-host uh, somebody of a different generation, you know, Derek might be a millennial, um, Will's kind of a millennial Gen X right there on the borderline. I'm definitely Gen X and you get very focused views about what we think about cars and the collector car hobby and where the collector car ho- hobby is going. But I thought it'd be great on this show because there's not a lot of shows with people of really Gen Z out there talking. Everybody is a millennial or Gen X or heck, even baby boomers. I mean, one of the uh, big car podcasts I listen to, maybe two of them are really baby, very tail end baby boomers, early, early Gen X. So let's get some, let's hear some of the new voices, the people that are going to be out there. We keep talking about how No Driving Gloves is here to get new people and to continue the collector car hobby and the this thing that's provided so much enjoyment to us for years let's let's get a different perspective let's get let's get somebody who'll tell Derek and I when we're wrong which we know never happens uh, especially according to the very yeah we'll see very few emails that you say that on right now uh, let me quickly well, I'm going to introduce Brian Bush he's going to be a, the this new co-host right there at you know, Gen Z falls into just about all the definition definitions of Gen Z. Has kind of a cool car of his own. Again, one that I remember in my mid-20s selling as a brand new car. It's really a different perspective, I think, on the collector car industry. Plus, he's not 100% a car person. He doesn't live his life around cars. So he should even have a little bit different perspective on that. But... Brian, why don't you go ahead and say hi and give us a quick synopsis of you and whatever you want out there in public. Sure, John. Yeah, I'm Brian. I'm 24 and professionally I'm an engineer at a sensor company, but been just a lifelong sufferer of the salt, salt belts of Buffalo, New York. And I've had the car bug my whole life, but really kind of got back into it closer to driving age. I got into the uh, Antique Automobile Club of America, got into judging cars a little bit here and there. In college, I helped run a car club with some friends and got to the point where I started to buy a couple interesting cars of my own. I got into Mitsubishi 3000 GTs on my 
second now. It's a VR4, 1995, pretty clean car, but you know, it has its problems as does any 25 year old car, but I do a little bit of everything. I like driving cars and various events and cruises. I like wrenching, but above all, I'm just kind of a nerd. I like hunting around on Craigslist, Facebook marketplace, bring a trailer, just seeing what's out there, digging into info on cars I didn't know about. And I really like, I could probably find a car from any generation that I like, but I do focus around cars from the nineties, maybe early two thousands as that's what's available to me. It's what's practical and it's what's still sometimes an affordable price. You mentioned having that VR4 and it has a little, a few little problems. And that's something we always address or we talk a little bit about these newer cars and the problems that they're going to have. Now, granted, you're still not to an uh, OBD2 system. That should probably be, is that OBD1 still or did that make OBD2? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like a hybrid. So it has an OBD2 connector, but it's still OBD2, OBD1. Car has active aero. That car has a variable exhaust, if I remember correctly. And really a lot of cutting edge features yeah. for 94, 95, 96. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's got the, the four wheel steering, all the VR4s from 91 to 99 had that. And that's one thing now I'm like, well, I've never changed the power steering fluid. I'm like, it's probably a good idea to change that. And I was looking in the dealer service manual. They're like, yeah, you, you have to get it running and you have to get it up to, I don't know, 45 miles per hour while it's elevated to get the rear pump to activate. And I'm like, that sounds, that sounds dangerous. So maybe I won't be doing that, but it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things like that you're gonna have to deal with. There's always this belief with some fluids though, especially when it comes to automatic transmission fluid. I mean, at least for my generation yeah. and what I was taught is if it's never been changed and it's been 10 years or 15 years or a hundred, 200,000 miles, you're better off not to touch it than you are to touch it because mm -hmm some of that wear in there is now taken up by dirt. And when you clean it, you <laughs> clean it. So not take that as service advice, but well, it's all wheel drive too, isn't it? Yeah. So you've got to get it up on probably a two post lift, all four wheels mm -hmm. off the ground. Yeah. It sounds pretty dangerous. So I'm like, yeah, do I want to do that? I don't know. But at the same time, the parts are not really available to rebuild the rear steering rack. So it's one of those things if that's what I need to do to keep it going. That's kind of where I was going is these newer cars, it's supposed to be, it gets more and more difficult to find parts and things. And one thing I've always said about any of the cars that I'm interested in and Derek's interested in, say pre-1980, pre-1985, everything on that car at one point in time didn't exist and then was drawn, created, a mold made, castings made, at some point, that part on that car was made by hand before it was put into production. And when we start getting into cars like yours, a lot of those car parts were designed by a computer, machine CNC, done in ways that God only knows how you would do it manually without the CNC programs, yeah. et cetera, to make the initial, and well, basically the pattern part before you could go on to make the part. And that always seems to be be a challenge. I know that, you know, you can always do aftermarket ECUs and that to get around, build new wiring harnesses, which I'm trying to remember. While that car wasn't made in Bloomington, Illinois, I had friends that worked for Diamond Star. I lived in Peoria. It was about 
35 minutes from the Diamond Star factory, which is now the uh, Rivian factory. Yes. And, you know, they work there building eclipses and talons and uh, Chrysler lasers and probably a few other cars as time went on. I remember that the GSRs had over a mile of wiring in them. They had the shell, then the wire harness went in, everything was built around it. So to rewire it, it's got to be a nightmare. It's not not exactly that simple three-circuit thing that a Model T would have been. How are you finding your collector car journey? Is it frustrating? Is it is it really a nice relief? It's been okay. I mean, I, I started with pretty much the best car I could find. So I, I had a I had a non-turbo 3000 G Hebe to begin with. And that was that was a really clean car too. That was like 42,000 miles. It was really well taken care of. And that car, I did nothing besides like brakes. And I had it two years and didn't have to do anything else. And then I sold it to finance this VR4. You know, I tried to buy the best car I could because you hear all these horror stories of jump timing and dented oil pans that cause the motor to go and all sorts of leaks and electrical issues and stuff not working. So I I, I managed to find as best one as I could. And that was kind of my, I bought that and I think, yeah, it was like summer 2019. So then in 2020, it kind of became, you know, the COVID project of doing a lot of the maintenance, still an original timing belt, things along those lines. And it is kind of hard to find parts for here and there. I mean, ultimately it's a 25 year old car. Mitsubishi in America at least is not very much of a brand at all anymore. I've watched like, I don't know, all the dealers close to buy it to me just shut the doors in the last couple of years. A lot of like new technology, like 3D printing and things along those lines have helped bring a lot of like life back to the platform. And there's been some kind of unconventional things too. I mean, there's this like wet door, weather stripping trim piece goes bad on all of them. And it was like discontinued or it was just announcing it was going to be discontinued or there wasn't any left. And someone in China somehow managed to like mold new ones and they're not perfect, but they're like 95% of the way there. It's pretty surprising. Yeah, 95% of the way there is a lot better than a part that's only 6% there. So, Yeah, it's that and it's it's cannibalizing a lot of stuff from junkyards because luckily there's a lot of base model ones that are in the yards from time to time. And whenever I go there, most people are there after like big parts like, oh, something's wrong with the exhaust or like the heads or something. And I'm just taking all the, I'm like, oh, the trim is really good on this one. All the weather stripping is really good. And I'm just taking all that stuff because I know even if it's not that bad in my car, it's going to be bad eventually. I'm just kind of stocking up as much as I can. Yeah, you got to find that one guy back when I was into my CRXs in the early 90s. So they were just out of production. I guess I'm thinking this is 94, 95. That puts it about the time you were born. (laughs) Had my web TV, didn't even have a PC yet. That's how I I got introduced to the web. It was this little box that you connected to your TV and you can get on the internet. I've never heard of that. And on my CRX discussion forum, there was a guy there and he was buying up everything he could CRX part buying dealership parts over stocks and, Oh, these, you know, they didn't need these and just, and kind of ended up owning every spare part for a CRX. Now where he went, I don't even know, but there's gotta be somebody out there like that for your car. Mm-hmm. I had a friend when I moved here to Birmingham, he was really, really big into the Saturn sky. And he had his Saturn Sky and he had bought every extra body panel, just, you know, every extra trim piece. Basically, he had a whole nother Saturn Sky disassembled in his garage so that he could keep his car running. And I haven't talked to him in 10 years or so, 
Um, just somebody, him and I never saw quite eye to eye. It's interesting to hear, and you've got the perseverance to keep this car going. You've had it for four years now, and if you're 24, that means you got it at 20. Mm-hmm. Between 20 and 24, I probably had eight cars. Cars don't stick around with me for a, a long period of time. And you said you had a, was that an, like an SL 3000 before it? Yeah, that was the first one. Yeah, it was just an SL, but both were just tail green over beige. But I just, I didn't even want a 3000 GT in particular. I was just looking for my first interesting car that was, I don't know, four or $5,000. And that came up on Craigslist and I was like, yeah, I just really like the green. So that kind of drew me in and I kind of figured out the rest from there. Well, did you go in knowing the most valuable piece of advice to the collector car industry or did you learn it or did somebody tell you that buy the best car you can afford? It's always cheaper. Yeah. Well, that's just for my dad. Like I tell my dad about I'm like, Oh, I want to buy this. And he's like, if anything had more than like 80, 90, hundred thousand miles, he's like, why would you buy that? It has so much, so, so high miles that SL only had, yeah, 42,000 when I got it. So I think he kind of knew that he's like, it was a clean car. It had absolutely no rust at all, which is like shocking. Cause I think it spent its entire life in Buffalo. It was bought at a, I think a dealer not too far away. It was a really good car. That sounds like it was bought as a summer car. You know, there's oh, yeah. a lot of Miatas out there like that. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that's kind of what we get around here. It's anything that's, you know, could be used as a daily driver, like reasonably, doesn't fare very well. But stuff like Miatas and yeah, all sorts of little like roadsters and stuff like that, people take care of. Your Craigslist Facebook marketplace is probably filled with hundreds of WRXs with no floors, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. The whole like <laughs> rears are rusted out. I, I looked at an Impreza once, actually. There was a 97 Impreza Outback 5-speed that some old lady had. And I think that only had 40,000 miles on it. And it was only like 2,500 bucks. And I went to look at it and it was just rotted. And she had said, she's like, oh, I had rust repairs done before, but it's like, you look under the engine bay, it's good. Like the, the, the front doors is good. And then as soon as you get like halfway back to the car, it was just, it's just gone. And it drove good, but it was one of the things where I'm like, I just, I just can't buy a car this rusted out because I know it's days are numbered. Yeah, days are numbered or the most expensive repair and a restoration is the body work. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a 64 uh, Impala SS convertible at one of the shops I was at probably 20 years ago. I don't know if the top was ever put up on this car, but everything was rusted out of this car. There's an outer rocker and then the inner rocker. And then there's actually a structural piece in the convertibles that goes between the inner and outer rocker that nobody repops. And it's, oh boy, it's got to be quarter inch plate steel probably keeps the car from folding in half, to be honest. Of course, our fabricator had to make those for both sides of the car. That car ended up with $160,000 of metal work. And at the time, it was worth forty grand to begin with. Mm-hmm. You wonder with some people. I mean, I did a 57 Chrysler 300C convertible also at a shop. This was probably 30 years ago. And to be honest, the only thing on that Chrysler 300C body-wise that went out that came in was the firewall drilled the spot welds out off the floorboards and it moved over to a New Yorker convertible. But yeah, uh, rust is a, a tough thing. Yeah. Let's jump into kind of what the topic's going to be tonight. We've talked a little bit about you and as this podcast goes on, we don't want to get all your stories tonight. We'll get them as the show goes on as Derek and I are out of stories. We just repeat our same stories over and over. I kind of wanted to poke your brain a little bit and then researching this i go jesus these are kind of some of the same toys that i want to have 
the cars that Gen Z is going to start collecting, the cars that were run-of-the-mill new cars. You know, like I said, I was selling cars in 95, selling car stereos in 94, selling cars in 95, and then went to college and you know, it took six years after high school to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And then I went on to college and learned restoration. And these are the cars that a lot of them I drove, Eric drives, or, you know, we just thought of as everyday cars, which is something I think about the stuff that I find a lot of that mid 80s stuff and front wheel drive Chrysler stuff. To be honest, it was just stuff we drove or my parents drove and what do you think, you know, I've got all these lists pulled up, Hagerty's list, Auto Cars list, Automoblog's list of the greatest cars for Gen Z. And, you 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 know, you might be partial to the 3000s now. Mm-hmm. What do you think is really the most popular cars for people your age? In your car club in high school and people you surround yourself now with cars, uh, what are they talking about? What do they like? What do your friends have? Or do they? Because you are actually pretty young to really be into this with a collector car. Not a lot of people in my high school had interesting cars. There was like a handful. And the most interesting cars like out of my friend group is one of my friends had a Mark IV Golf GTI that he got from his grandpa. And it was pretty clean. It was an automatic, unfortunately. And one of my other friends ended up getting a, it was a Lincoln LS, which even at that time I thought was an unusually clean example because they're, they're all just beat completely but that was about it no one no one really had too much money for anything interesting as i got into college there's a lot more stuff that started to become popular so of course you know if you had one car to do it all wx's ford focus sts newer golf gti's kind of things of those nature if you had a little more money of course audis bmws most of my closer friends now a lot of them got into like drifting the cheapest and still is one of the cheapest platforms for that is like the, the e36 chassis BMWs. And that's one where like between the group of, I don't know, four or five of them, they've gone through, I don't know, dozens of them over the last few years, just because they know them and they stock up parts for them and they can get one and have it all set up for drifting within weeks. And that's one of the big ones, Nissan 350Zs. That's something, I don't know. I I remember when those came out thinking they're pretty cool. And I was, you know, five years old, seeing them in that kind of metallic burnt orange, but that was something that's generally been pretty cheap and available, but it's, it's started to dry up the last few years as they've all been beat and turned into drift cars and have 200,000 miles. Now that happens to a lot of things. 240SXs, you know, because of drifting, oh, yeah. th- those went away really, really quick. You know, Mark IV GTI, it, it ran for a decade, did it not? It was something like 97 to 06 or so. And I want to say my brother had a 94 or excuse me, uh, 05 or an 06, maybe brand new. And he's into his third Volkswagen GTI. He had an 88 and then he went through the WRX and a couple other things. And pretty much he's been a Volkswagen GTI guy ever since. And he's five years younger than me, but he, that still makes him, he's always wanted the 82 to really figure out where it, it came from. And, mm-hmm. you know, your E34 BMW is at 90 to 2000 right after say people my age are all about the M3, you know, the 88, 89 M3, that's the car to have. And, you know, hundred and a quarter now. And like you said, these cars are going to the drifters and get destroyed. You know, drifting is not an easy sport. It's hard on the cars. Desirable now, desirable when young, makes them valuable when you get older. Uh, E46. Yeah. 
Yeah, the E36 is just like a lighter, more simple chassis. Once you get an E46, they're still they're still simple compared to a modern BMW, but it's a little, a little bulkier. The, the, the one trim's cool. There's like, what is it, a 330ZHP, but those are actually quite pricey now. Yeah, I also forgot the earlier WRXs and STIs. I'm a big fan of like, yeah, that 04 to 07 kind of generation of them. Like mm-hmm. one of my dad's coworkers when I was growing up had one, and I remember him telling me about it. He wasn't really... He wasn't really into too many non-American cars, but I remember he went for riding that and he was just telling me all about it. And I remember seeing that thing. It was silver, had the big wing. And that was just a really cool car. And those are really, really tough to find in good shape now. And they're they're selling for pretty good money accordingly. I always like round headlight ones of those. Oh, uh, the bug eye. The bug eye things. Of course, I also like the, the, the bug eye Sprite. So <laughs> it's interesting looking at the this list of stuff that, you know, kind of popular or what they're saying is going to be popular, you know, the SN90 SN95 Mustangs, the yeah, 94 to when did those go to? A06. I think it was a, Yeah. Maybe it was a, uh, maybe it was a 04. I can't remember when the Yeah, 04 sounds right to me cuz they ended with the Terminator, the the Cobra that was supercharged. I guess you're even naming cars that are a little bit pre you. I'm thinking back to my high school friends, you know, 69 Camaros and one of my best friends in high school, huge after 69 Camaros, another one of my friends, still has his 67 Mustang. And another one still has his 64 and a half Mustang that's been totaled three oh, times wow. and they've restored every single time. He only totaled it twice. <laughs> but, you know, they still have those cars and those were a few years before them. And I've never been, for me, born in 71. I don't really know if I like anything until you start getting into 80 or 81, you know, 10 years after I was born. So you're falling into, I guess, what the bigger group is, is the cars that were just before you were born is where you're looking here and the things to to collect. Let's see here. Let me pick a few on this lister and if they're even des- desirable or you think 986 Boxsters. Yeah. Yeah, they've been on my radar. They're pretty neat. They were very cheap for a while. I think they're starting to pick up a little steam, but those still have that. Uh, I think they still have the IMS bearing issue, correct? Uh, they do have the IMS bearing issue. There is a way to fix it. You're always better to buy one that problem's yeah. been fixed, quote, fixed, and still can go bad. I mean, I had a 987. I sold it because of the IMS bearing issue, as I just got terrified of it and mm-hmm. a $20,000 motor replacement. And I, to this day, kick myself for selling it. I should have just taken the risk. Um, I have a friend, well, he passed away about a year ago. He had one of the first 986s delivered and it got totaled and he bought the exact same car. When were they for, when they first get 97, 97, Sounds about right. Yeah. And then he ended up with a 98. He ended up with a year newer because, yeah, had to be 97 because when he passed away, he still had a red 98 with the you know plastic rear window and everything. And that's really on my radar is to get a 04 986 or one of the 550 editions, ideally. But yeah, those are good looking cars. Being in the, the Northeast in that, do the Miatas fall under your radar? Do... The Z3s fall onto the radar? Or? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I had those on my list. Uh, and those do survive well because people didn't really drive them. 
during winter. So there's still a decent amount around. And uh, the Miatas have definitely picked up the last few years. I, I think you, I mean, I was used to buying a lot of people could buy a pretty good one for, you know, $3,000, $4,000. And they've definitely started to pick up. I mean, ones that are four or $5,000 a marketplace are just not in great shape. Yeah. It used to be three grand. You could buy one and you could use it. Oh yeah. And it's not, I don't even think it's inflation. And they started to do it before the pandemic. It started to be yeah. that a $3,000 Miata was now six and a $1,500 one was now three. And yeah, it's, Wanted one so bad. I ended up owning a one year 2000. I bought a 97. I really enjoyed it. And my brother had one too. So I think he had a 95 and I had a 97. Fun car. Check engine light came on. So got rid of it. <laughs> Stupid things I used to do. Yeah, they're they're pretty plentiful. I mean, they made, I don't know. I think between all the generations, they've probably made close to a, what a million or two million of them, probably now. Well, I know they built over a million of them at some point because it it's now outsold the MGB as the most mm-hmm. popular roadster, and I see it remaining. I mean, our Mazda did such a great job with especially the first gen cars. I always you know like the pop ups, the they finally are admitting that, yeah, they patterned it off the 60s Lotus Salon, and they did a sure. very good job of it. The engine looks the same. The interior is similar. I mean, there's just so many similarities through the whole car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the faux, the faux mini lights that they put on them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Lightweight. And it's just something that will never be built again, no matter how hard you try. I think the current, which is now, what, the fourth generation? Yes, yeah, the NDE is probably the best one since the first generation. I mean, the, the NB cars were, you know, to me, just they were bigger on the outside and smaller on the inside. And ex-girlfriend used to have one of them. She loved it and had fun with it, but she never had the first gen, gen car. And the first gen car was just a, so much smaller exterior and Ironically, I think it was bigger interior the way I hate Fords went bigger interior about five or six years ago when they moved the doors a little bit farther from the driver and everything for mm-hmm. side impact. Yeah, the Miata is one of those where I feel like it's you don't have to be that into cars to like it. So I think there are people that I know, like people I went to high school with that are more casual car enthusiasts that have you know bought Miatas or into Miatas. It's one of those things that has a pretty you know universal appeal. It's just kind of a fun car. Looks fun. Well, the odd thing on a Miata, though, in that is so many of them, well, especially the first-gen cars, are manual transmissions, and nobody yeah. drives a manual transmission anymore. Yeah. I know there's some automatics out there, don't get me wrong. It seems like every time I look at one, it's manual, unless you're, I mean, automatic's a $1,000 deduction or so. Oh, yeah, if not more, yeah. Do you see your generation getting any anywhere into front engine Porsches or the the 944s or the even the 24s or because you know we talked the 986 Boxster and I always wanted a 914. You know I remember coming home many times trying to talk my dad into buying me this fifteen hundred dollar 914 that looked like it lived in Buffalo. Yep. And I was always no 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 no. I mean he let hats off to my dad. He let me buy cars quite often but he did control and didn't let me do stupid things and you know now the 914 is a very desirable car I'm trying to think 15 years ago i tried to buy one for not 
eight or nine grand a 1.8 liter car and heck that car is in the mid 20s now i still know where that car is uh and the 986s will be the same way and i think the front engine cars are even the like 83 944s and the even i want to say the 924s but i don't think the 924s will ever be blue chip yeah 928s are finding a home now finally it's really only Tom Cruise, wasn't it, with a 928? I'm trying to think of any other show that... Scarface. Scarface had one? Yep. And it, I want to say uh, Bruce Willis had a 9... Ha, in one of the early episodes of Moonlighting. Um, it might have been the first episode of Moonlighting, I remember, because Maggie comes in, Sybil Shepherd comes in and tells him... And no more company car. And he goes, you're going to make me sell the, 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 the 928 or, you know, the Porsche, he either said Porsche 928 or he said 928. And she said, yes, both of them. <laughs> so he was, and I think it may, you know, it made an appearance in one episode of that show. Hmm. And I can't remember if it was the first body style or no, it had to be the first body style. Cause moonlighting was 84, 85, which, I'm sorry, it's 10 years before you again. You, you got to bring me up into your your, your uh, decade here. Yeah. Of course, then again, you throw 1983 Scarface out at me, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the front-engine Porsches are cool. I've always liked those, and those were, like, I, I think for the longest time of me being in, yeah, high school, college, that was a, just a common Craigslist find for, you know, a 944, maybe $3,000, a 928, maybe $5,000, there's a lot of times where I looked at them like, man, I really want one of those. And you look at like the maintenance costs, the common issues. And I was just like, Ooh, but I do have one friend that's had one for, he's had it a very long time. I think from when he started driving, which I, don't know, I guess in the scheme of things for you probably isn't that, that long of a time, but he likes it a lot. That's one of his, that's almost like a forever car, which is saying some, cause he buy, buys and sells cars like every month, but they've, they've been on my radar for a while. And I do think they're really cool. I think the, the 928s are definitely the quirkiest of the bunch, but it's, you know, the most maintenance intensive and they've definitely, they're getting quite pricey if, for a good example that has a manual transmission. Yeah, they're, they're climbing because, you know, it's always been the maintenance costs that have scared people away. I think what happened, the Porsche market's been crazy and been bringing up numbers. And what's happened is people have bought the cheap 928s and put the money into them and now they can sell them and not lose, lose everything. Hence, it's now brought the market up to where you can afford to fix them. It's like the yeah. Lambert Espadas. You know, yeah. so many of those were sacrificed because they were $20,000 $20, cars and a motor rebuilds thirty grand. So you're going to pull that motor and then you put it in your Countach. Again, we're talking before your time, but it also clicked until 04 when the Cayenne was introduced. Porsche never sold a front engine car in your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Well, even that's a truck. So it would have been until the Panamera in 09, I think was the first Panamera. I think, I don't know. I remember like going on some sort of camping trip when I was a kid and I was kind of just like riding my bike down to like the beach. And I think it was, it was some sort of front engine Porsche that went by. I don't think it was a 944. It might've been like a 924 turbo, but I remember it was a Porsche. Mm -hmm. I remember it said turbo and, you know, big sticker letters in the back. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but I like it. Yeah. That, that would have been a 24. They had those huge yeah. decals. I don't think they carried. Yeah. Well, across the, the, the 24s had them down the side. 
I think yeah, the sure. early nine four fours had them across the back. So maybe. And they wouldn't have had the um, flared fenders in the earliest cars. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those those are my radar. I like what I like a lot is the the, the Chrysler Conquest and the uh, the Mitsubishi Starion. That's very nine four four like, especially when you look at a lot of like Motor Week comparisons from the time. I just I think that's one of the better looking like affordable cars of the eighties. It's just neat. Oh, I've talked about it on the podcast before, and oh, yeah. there's there was a red one that used to cruise Main Street back when we cruised Main Street with the hottest blonde driving it, and <laughs> <laughs> always wanted those. And Norby was the guy's name. He was one of the waiters at the restaurant I worked at. He had a Conquest, but it wasn't a TSI or anything. It was like an 85 Conquest, so it didn't have the flares, didn't have the huge yeah, wheels. Not intercooled. Yeah, very, very simple car. No, got to be a TSI, and it's got to be over the top. And I've never driven one for some crazy reason. Probably wouldn't like it because, I'll be honest, I like front-wheel drive cars. But Yeah, yeah those were kind of my radar when I was – about getting my vr4 but i started realizing like to find one that's clean and sorted it's almost the same price and it's they're cool cars i'm like i don't know if the driving experience would age as well and even though there's they're awesome to look at there's no doubt about that no i think they would be two totally different generation driving experience being from the 80s and being 80s mishibishi and mid 90s mishibishi your car was built your 3000s were when Mitsubishi was as hot as they could be. And yeah. again, I'll go back in time in 91, I was managing at a pizza hut and one of the other assistant managers, he traded his Mitsubishi Gallant for a Hyundai Sonata. Mm-hmm. This is like 91, 92. And I kind of said, I don't know if I'd have done that. I said, you know, Mitsubishi's a hell of a lot better car than a Hyundai. Yeah. 30 years later, <laughs> I would take a Sonata over anything Mitsubishi. You know, you said they're hard to find dealerships or something. I was at a Best Buy today and uh, one pulled into the parking lot across from me, Mitsubishi Lancer, not, not a Evo or anything. And I went, Hmm, I guess they still do make them. And I think I saw a used little, I don't know, it'd be like an Aveo sized or. Oh, it's a Mirage probably. It's pizza cutter tires. Uh, the up up in Huntsville the other day, and it's just you just forget they exist. I couldn't even tell you where a Mitsubishi dealership is, and I've have well, I have a f- couple that's their friends, husband and wife, and they have two, but they you know they're um, uh, Evos because they race them, and I have another friend who's got an Evo that races, and it's all Evos that they, and that's the only thing I knew Mitsubishi produced recently. Uh, I always thought they made a huge mistake when they went to the third generation Eclipse. I think yeah. that's when the company died. No turbo, no, you know, first of all, ugly car, but no turbo, all six cylinders, and it's not as tunable. What's next on your radar? We've talked about a lot of cars. Have we thrown anything out there, thrown you a loop? Uh, Not too much. I don't know. I'm... If anything, I'm maybe considering being in the market for a new daily driver, but I think the Mitsubishi, I don't know, it's it's kind of a lifer car. I'm too invested. If I was smart, I would have just bought it, did the basic maintenance, and then like doubled my money. But because buying that in 2019 was a pretty good deal. But that one's kind of a forever one. That's something I'm gonna just continue to maintain and tastefully modify as best as I can. 
Yeah, if you don't turn it into a drift car and, you know, do some over-the-top non-reversible modifications, no. you know, I believe that's a car that will always appreciate. You won't lose. You bought it in 19, so you won't lose money on it. If you'd have bought it in late 2020, early 2021, yeah. yeah. So you think you're 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 gonna stick with the one car, one toy car thing? I think so. I don't know. I'd like to have two toy cars. I have the space for it. I have an extra garage spot, but it's you know just buying and I, I I don't know. I just bought my first house, so definitely be a while before I can kind of work at the logistics if that's possible. But yeah, I'm kind of a daily driver and then weekend cruiser kind of guy. I was thinking about changing out my '99 Forerunner for something a little more modern. And something that'd be like better for autocrossing, something like front wheel drive performance car, mid 2000s. I was thinking about like Civic SIs, the uh, one of the more obscure ones. Well, not obscure, but tough to find. The first like accurate TSXs with a six speed, but those are those are quite hard to find. I I've done a lot of like looking around, and very few come up that aren't you know salvage title, two hundred thousand miles. But also yeah, also the Acura TL. One of my friends had one of those. It was a six speed. Acura TL and those are actually pretty cool cars. And I think they're definitely picking up steam. That was, I would think that's probably the peak of like, Ac or well, that was probably the, the last of the year, you know, Acura and Hondas. I'm sure as you know, I'm like naturally aspirated motors, manual transmissions, relatively simple and subtle styling. But I like those a lot. I drove, I drove my one friends and it was great. And that thing had 300,000 miles on it. It was, it was beat, but it still held up pretty well. You're mentioning all those, and we've talked a little bit Honda. The one car I never hear discussed is the Prelude. Oh, I, I do. Yeah, I like those. I mean, the, the final generation, probably the best, but those are one, probably the most expensive now. Old Boss had the uh, 88 Prelude SI, four-wheel mm -hmm. steering, blah, blah, blah. I like that one. See, I like that. After about 90... I want to say after 94 or so, I just don't like the way Hondas shift. They're not, they're smooth where you get into the, the CRXs I like and that generation of prelude. It's a little bit notchier on the shifter. I just kind of like that a little bit better when it comes to manual. I'm just curious. I just never hear anything mentioned about the prelude anymore. It's always the Integras or yeah. the, like you said, the TSXs but the problem I see for you on that is going from a forerunner to that and you live in Buffalo. Maybe if you lived in Pennsylvania, yeah. that would be reasonable. But what was the snowfall up there recently? Uh, 23 inches? Or? Mm, we've had more than that. I don't know. We've had we've had years where we got like 80 inches in like, I don't know, three or four days. I can't remember what it was exactly, but I don't know. I, I had to probably dig out about three feet of snow about a month ago. So we get a lot. And it's one of the things where like, a lot of times I don't have to drive, but it's one of those things with the forerunner. I'm like, I'm not scared to drive really ever. No, no problems at all with that. Yeah. That's probably something I'd just keep, you know, if you did do another daily driver, I'd probably just keep the forerunner for those mm -hmm. or get rid of it and get a Ford Ram GMC yeah. with a plow. Yeah. Yeah. That's another money thing. I can't justify what used a lot of used trucks sell for, but I, I, not what used trucks sell for it, period, anymore no. of it. Yeah, and it's tough because I, I would go older. Like I've had, there's a lot of older, you know, 80s, 90s SUVs, stuff like that that I find cool, but it 
it comes to a certain point where I'm like, yeah, I don't really want to get an ax in one of these. I had a, I had a friend that I kind of helped him buy it. He bought a, it was a 94 Nissan Pathfinder and it came up from the South. So like the paint was baked and a lot of the weather stripping was bad, but it wasn't rusty. It was an e car. I always kind of liked the proportions of those, but he fell asleep at the wheel, went into the woods and he said, like he was, he walked away from the whole, like a pillar was collapsed. And I'm just like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be driving around cars as old every day. And ever since then, I'm like, yeah, I got to probably start moving to things that are a little newer, if anything. There's a topic uh, for a future episode is this, the safety differences, because sure. like I say, I didn't think anything of driving a, a Caterham seven on, you know, the interstate in Washington, DC. It's safer to drive a Fiero than it is a Caterham, but uh, safer to ride a motorcycle than it is to drive a Caterham. I'll be honest. That's something I have never considered when buying a car with the exception about two or three years ago when I sold my SHO and I sold my Transit Connect and I wanted to get something cheap, I had the opportunity to buy a 38,000-mile Mazda B2200 extended cab pickup. Always wanted one of these things. The person I was dating at the time had kids. If I was in the relationship now, I would have bought it. It was just I couldn't drive something like that and risk having her kids in my car and getting into an accident. It's the sure. only time that I think safety has really crossed my mind in buying a car. And it's an interesting thing for you to say because I wonder if that's a generational thing also because you've grown up with airbags and I mean, you, you're probably beyond the motorized seatbelts. You've, you've probably yeah. always had airbags and always had I remember when the third brake light came out, the, uh, the Chismal, the center high-mounted stop lamp. It was optional on the 85 Cadillacs and became standard in 86. This could be an interesting co-host because there's a lot of memory lane, a lot of, I think we'll get you a little bit out of your shell. You'll learn how to get a little bit more aggressive. And yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed chatting about this tonight. I don't, you know, again, it's no driving gloves. I don't know if we got anywhere. It's just a couple car guys talking. Is there anything you want to close with? We're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Hit that share button. You know, if you're listening to this on your podcast player, up in the corner, everyone's got a share button. Just share. All we ask is you share this podcast with one person. Go to our website. Check it out. If you go ahead and send us your email, everybody who's on the email list, we'll start, we're going to start giving away prizes once a month for people on the email list. Uh, we're not going to spam you with anything other than just to let you know that the show's the show has released no driving gloves.com for all of that all of our back episodes all for our long season episodes Derek and i are still working on some of one of the multi-episode seasons i think we're going to go ahead and keep brian here on the team see if he likes us and still hangs out i know he's invested in some new equipment brian anything for you no nothing nothing i have to say i think we covered most of the bases i want to talk about Brian does have a really interesting topic we're going to touch on, but I kind of want Derek here when we do it. Uh, say like, share, subscribe. Let us know what you think. Producer at nodrivinggloves.com now. You can go nodrivinggloves at gmail.com, but producer at nodrivinggloves.com. Uh, get your emails to us. Let me know what's going on. Check us out on Facebook. And like I said, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. This show was
was a part of the No Driving Gloves Network, produced and edited by John Viviani of Magic City Podcast, with voice work by Gary Conger. So until the next exit...